0: As a reminder to listeners, all topics discussed are unclassified, and views expressed by guests or hosts are not necessarily the position of the United States Air Force or the Department of Defense.
1: Today's topic is about mental health, and the topic of suicide will be brought up. Welcome back to the Deciphering
2: Doctrine Podcast. We will be your hosts as we interview our guest, Captain Aaron Morrison, an active duty clinical psychologist to discuss mental health. Dr. Morrison, welcome to the podcast. Please tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Good afternoon. Um, Thank you so much for having me. So I'm uh, the mental health element chief currently stationed at Kirtland Air Force Base in Mexico, and I'm originally from California.
1: According to Air Force doctrine, the mental health of airmen is critical to mission success. And I know some bases in the Air Force do a really good job of emphasizing that fact, and some bases maybe um, are a little lacking. Um, as our first question to you, how would an airman know that he or she should seek mental health services?
0: I think it's a good question. I think um, mm-hmm. usually people have a good sense of when they need help, though sometimes, sometimes that can be difficult. Um, Especially if you are in danger of arming yourself or others, that's a great time to go to mental health. Reach out to leadership. Um, I think that's usually communicated really well. And I think in general, the Air Force done a good job of reducing stigma. I think I've seen um, the efforts going really well. I think it can be hard to know um, where on the spectrum to go to mental health before that. And so I think anyone who wonders if they need help, um, they can reach out to professional, they can reach out to their PCM, to a doctor, To their shirt, shirts are trained in that too, um, to leadership, and just get a second opinion. So people, close friend, close confidant, taught things out. Um, If someone doesn't have those resources, that's fine too. Um, Most bases in the Air Force are going to what's called the targeted care model, and um, you can call mental health and they'll kind of triage your situation and give you options.
2: Could you go more into the targeted Vectoring of mental mm-hmm. health and what other support there is out there, what other methods that can be utilized except for going to your PCM or your chaplain or your shirt?
0: Yeah, definitely. So the goal is that when you call mental health, um, the technicians answer the phone have been trained to assess what's happening. And so it's important to tell them what's going on when you call because they can only you know deal with information that they're given. And so they're gonna read kind of a consent, explain the process. But in general, um, most bases have access to Military one OneSource, um, to Inflax, and to mental health, as well as other resources. And I, I can explain what those are. So Military OneSource serves as kind of like a referral platform to um, resources in the community. And the idea is that things that don't rise to the level of mental health itself can be dealt with at that level. So, um, you know, sadness, getting used to where you are, maybe some worry, concerns that aren't necessarily um, fully like, gonna result in a clinical diagnosis. Um, military one source can talk to you on the phone. Some bases now will go through that process with you on the phone and um, get you to where you need to be within that one session. So if you call in or walk in, they can walk you through that process. And the goal is to get you to have an appointment um, at that same time. Sometimes it doesn't work out that way, either with phone congestion, maybe you don't have time, but um, their goal is gonna be to get you there and get that scheduled. Um, Inflacs are marriage and family life counselors that are licensed, independently licensed. And as far as I'm aware, I've been to two bases. Um, Every base has them. And there's someone that's on the base, either attached to a unit or uh, some sort of body, the wing, something on the base. And um, they can see people anywhere, uh, You know, but in a home or in your car, but somewhere in the public, it could be somewhere private, but they can talk to you about whatever's happening. And they've been trained to know what they can or can't handle. So, if it's something they're not supposed to do, they're gonna know that, but they're also a great kind of first line of defense, talking through things. For many concerns, um, in just a few sessions, it can be resolved, or getting that peace of mind that you're talking about it, they can give you professional feedback. And so, that's not gonna be a medical record, it's not documented. And then, for concerns that go beyond those levels, um, going to the mental health clinic, either scheduling something, walking in, um, as far as I'm aware, every clinic has crisis times. So, if you're in immediate crisis, um, if there's harm to self or others, or, you know ultimate danger um really should go to like a er um, a lot of health clinics don't have that and that's where they're going to kind of divert you if you're not sure you know go to mental health but that's where the first shirts are also another f- first line of defense they know but um you can call in and get an appointment or just walk in and they'll help you figure it out
1: and like the military family
0: and life life yeah. counselor mm-hmm.
1: yes are single airmen living by themselves able to seek those services too
0: but Any anybody can see them um that's more based on their licensing and professional status and I'm not sure where that title comes from but yeah they can see anyone
2: okay all these services they will be linked in our podcast description so if you didn't have like your pen and pencil already available for you you can always come back to this podcast to look into that description to have those options there as well
0: Mm -hmm. and if I may um just I think about a month ago or so the Chief of Staff of the Air Force and the Chief Master Sergeant Air Force they pushed out um i believe to everyone the resilience.af.mil website which has resources for everything awesome. and i checked it just yesterday um it has resources for domestic abuse resources for risk just anything that you possibly need is on there that's another great like kind of first thought resource to get linked to where you need to go
2: i think it's important that you mentioned all these different resources mm-hmm. and saying that it could be resolved within a few sessions so an airman may not may be thinking they have issues going on at home or at work or something they're working through but they think oh it's not worth it like I'm not I, I don't have those issues to go to mental health like I'm not depressed or I don't have anxiety or like I don't want to be diagnosed so there are other avenues for that and even if they do come to you for an actual appointment even your sessions aren't that long don't require to be long sessions either mm-hmm. um so going off of that what does a mental health appointment look like if they come to you?
0: Definitely. So if someone comes in and say they're in crisis, the goal is to kind of figure out what's happening, what's the crisis, um, work towards resolving that or finding some kind of solution and then seeing where they need to go. So if there's a you know, legitimate crisis and say they're at risk for suicide, we're gonna, we're gonna deal with that, we're gonna figure out what's happening, maybe have a safety plan, maybe figure out what needs to change um, in their home or, or work situation and kind of go from there. Um, if someone calls in, a different situation could be someone calls in, um, say for past trauma, that's a common one we get. Um, some people go through trauma and they're fine, but they don't know that it's okay to be fine. And statistically, most people who go through trauma are gonna be okay, but not everyone. So some people need you know, more um, detailed therapy, more like interventions, but just that giving that confidence back to the person that it, they're probably doing okay can be really therapeutic. So I have patients that have gone through horrific trauma or in the past, have had these patients. And in one session, you can kind of give them that peace of mind that they're doing okay. Because I think they should be doing worse than they are. And then there's on the other end of the spectrum, some people have been through lots of stuff and need the treatment. And so we can provide that. And then I think you asked a question, you asked about what it, was it look like? Is that what you asked?
2: Yes, yes. What does an appointment look like when you're in the chair sitting in front of you or next to you or however that is?
0: Definitely, yeah. So usually for sessions, are an hour to 90 minutes, depending on what's, what's being brought up. Um, most places will have you come in, do some paperwork, either like a, a handout, some consent forms, or on a computer. I think some places are computerized, some people have paper. Computers might be down, they do go down a lot. And um, so you're gonna spend some time doing some paperwork, having questions answered, things like that. That could be anywhere from 20, 30 minutes, depending on how fast you are with computers, paperwork, things like that. And the is gonna review that, they're gonna um, check it first and then bring you back. And so in most cases, it's one-on-one. If it's a training environment, there might be somebody else watching um, to assess them, but they'll ask you permission for that, or they've told you upfront that that's gonna happen. But first and foremost, providers are gonna explain confidentiality, what are reasons to break confidentiality, um, that it's being documented in the electronic medical record system. Um, kind of go from there, see if any questions. After that, um, it's gonna be focused on, um, you know, why they come in, what's happening, really just focusing on finding enough information before making any assessments. And that can be um, a decent period of time, depending on what's happening. And then um, most first sessions, I would say the goal is to have some treatment, figure out things that might help, might refer you to a group, might do individual therapy. Um, everything's it's optional. Maybe you don't need anything from there, and that's fine too. But having a, like a joint plan of how to move forward from there. And that whole process could take anywhere from 60 minutes, 90 minutes um, in its entirety.
2: So would you say that first session is just to like get to know you like get to know the person and then uh, go forward from there or can can just be one session appointment cannot just be it
0: oh, yeah, it's completely voluntary you don't have to come back some people um, feel better from one session and that's all they need um but really there should be planning in the first session too like what are our goals what are we trying to go after how we know when things are better um, in general, military therapy is not going to be the same as in the civilian world where you're in treatment for years. The goal is to figure out what's happening, what are our goals, um, and how do we know when things are, are resolved and then it's not going to last forever. So then where, what's the finish line and what do we get there? Obviously you could readdress that when it gets, when things get better, you can kind of re- reach back to that, but it isn't like kind of in the movies where you're on the couch, free associating, just indefinitely. Um, there should be a goal, I think. In the civilian world, therapy is regulated by um, just finances. Um, you want get, to get better because you're spending money on it. In the military is more about resources of people. In general, uh, mental health is undermanned, and the goal is to use resources appropriately. So if it's needed, then great. But the goal is to have a finite point, not just to be there indefinitely.
1: I think there's a lot of fear um, for airmen to mm-hmm. seek mental health services because there's an understanding that sometimes their leadership will be brought into the conversation. So can you talk about how an airman's commander or squadron leadership team um, is notified and how and why they are notified?
0: Definitely, I think that's a great question. Um, If someone comes to mental health and there's no reason, say, to put them on profile or to limit their duty status in any significant way, then their leadership generally wouldn't know that they're mental health. Um, That's generally kind of like the norm if someone comes in and say they share something that indicates they might need to be in a profile. So um, if someone's having concerns with, I don't know, falling asleep, anything that could be, if you're in a job that you should be staying awake, um, say like a pilot, if you're having like sleep issues, you know, maybe you shouldn't fly. On that flight issue um, specifically, like for us, we would send our notes to the flight doc to be co-signed and then they decide if someone can't fly or cannot, you can or can't fly. Um, but I thought it was a good example. If you, if you just can't stay awake, you probably shouldn't be flying an airplane. So, usually the concerns are very reasonable. Um, the reasonable person can kind of figure that out. If someone comes in and their life is in complete crisis, maybe there's been a um, traumatic event, and the provider determines that they are not in a good place to deploy, they can put them on a, a profile. And usually it's entered as a 90 day profile with the understanding that it can be ended early or extended. That's generally just kind of a frame of reference. Um, that profiles existence, Um, the commander can see that, but all they're gonna see is the limitation that they're being put on and kind of the time period. And if they were to call in and ask your questions, we are not gonna share all the intimate details of the sessions, but we can confirm some's coming to mental health. Um, There have been cases where patients will tell the commanders they're seeing us and they're not. So um, there have been deceptive patients that will say they're coming to mental health or not, and so the commanders need to know that. But outside of the commander in the shirt calling in to verify that, checking on deployment status, we're really not gonna share information. If someone else calls, we can't confirm or deny the person's there. So, but there are situations where it does make sense to bring the commander more, and that generally comes around safety. So um, suicidality, thoughts or harming self or others, that rise to a certain degree. Um, maybe it has planner intent, maybe there's other concerns, maybe there's been a history. Um, those can rise to the level of bringing in command more into treatment. And for those cases, um, there'll be a meeting, say with the commander, with the shirt talking about what does the person need? Um, what's the plan? How long would this status be, be ongoing? Usually it's kind of a four weeks thing and building a plan together, it could be, you know, 20 minutes, 40 minutes meeting and going from there. And in that situation, there is an elevated level reporting um, with the goal of safety. Um, we don't want people to come in, share that they're in a really difficult spot and then just be um, not helped. So the goal is to help them. Um, and in that situation, um, if someone no-shows employment, we're gonna call command. Normally, we wouldn't do that because that's the person's um, kind of the free will, the prerogative. They don't have to see us. But if there's risk, we want to take care of people and we're trying to see what we we can to keep them safe. That's another thing. A first shirt is an excellent resource. They're all trained in that and they kind of know what those lines are.
1: You brought up the career field of pilots. Are there other career fields that have special considerations when it comes to mental health and seeing your services?
0: Most definitely. The ones I'm most familiar with would be kind of the PRP, the PRAP, and the arming. So PRP and PRAP have to do with nuclear weapons, um, anything either connected with nukes or guarding the nukes. Those are the arming people, and there are specific rules for what they can and can't do as far as maintaining their career. Um, I'm on a PRAP base, and those people um, in those career fields, they they know what they can and can't do. There's a, lots of training, lots of awareness, um, even before they can start their careers and their jobs, getting certified. And then if they were to get to me, the first thing I would do is give my kind of standard consent. So reasons to break confidentiality or exceptions to confidentiality, harm itself or others, um, elder or child abuse, um, future harm. Um, then I would explain, um, I noticed you, you're in this career field. Um, are you aware of the additional you know, reasons for break confidentiality? And I can talk about that. So someone that doesn't carry a gun, if they're having sleep issues, but they do the job just fine, that's not a concern. But if someone's carrying a gun and they're falling asleep with their gun, that's a bigger concern. So in that kind of situation, we would pass on to the command the first having sleep concerns and they would get that additional information.
2: You also mentioned pro- profiles briefly. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you dive more into that? I know many airmen sure. are, can be afraid of having a profile on them. So how does that work? Like what's the profile for?
0: Sure. Um, So hypothetically, say someone has a death in family and they're having a really hard time, they're having concerns with sleep, concerns with work, and they're just not functioning. Um, Depending on the situation, um, if the provider determines like they're not in a good spot to deploy at this time or they should not be deployed, um, then there's a computer system, you can put in a profile, you might say um, sleep concerns, and then you can say like a mobility restriction um for 90 days and so what that's supposed to do is block any deployment taskings for that period of time the goal is if you engage in treatment and um, work towards improving that um, most people want to get off profile they want to deploy they want to like do their job if they're going through it their screeners improve and they're much better that profile can be ended any time and so um the concern we often see is there are people that want to be on profile that shouldn't be and so it's kind of this balance of when are concerns real when are concerns fabricated it is unusual, but it does happen. But usually we can tell. It's really hard to, to have that kind of deception and maintain it. But in general, the system, it's a computer system. You put it in there and then it, kind of a no patient comes out and the commanders can check that. So it's all a computer system. It's the same system um, medical doctors use. So if someone is starting a medication that might be sedating and might be tired, um, it's just standard practice run profile just in case there's that small risk of a side effect happening it doesn't happen
2: they also just mentioned medication. Mm-hmm. Do would they when they see you? Would they would you be prescribing them medication if they need it, or where would they go?
0: So I'm not a prescriber. I have training on medications, and I kind of know um, kind of the general gist of things. I'm not going to do dosages or pick meds, but I can kind of explain how they work. If someone's interested in medications, um, I can tell them the most appropriate way to get there. So for some bases, it's your PCM. For some bases, you might see a specialist. But generally, if someone's interested in that, um, there's ways to try it. And it's kind of interesting how some people it makes a huge difference, some people it doesn't. And it seems to be um, in a case-by-case basis, like no one really knows. So if someone's interested in that, in um, our base we go through PCM and they're gonna prescribe that, see how it works. And that's for case where it's, they're not gonna be placed on profile because it's a mental health medication, but because there's always a risk of side effects, just like any other medication.
2: Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um. I've had a friend that she went to a mental health appointment and a therapist there started recording without mentioning that she was recording or asking for consent. How, how would you go about that? What's legal and what's not legal? How does the patient know all their rights and knowing that when stuff goes wrong, what should they do?
0: that'd be very unusual for to me um do you know in that situation was there any any consent given any
2: to any, my knowledge there was no consent given um no consent asked for um, so no consent given
0: i cannot think of any situation in my training experience where that would be acceptable um it's a very big deal to record your patients like um, in training you would look we would look for a patient that fits certain parameters maybe it's a longer-term issue, and maybe it fits this idea of presenting like a really good patient that shows our skills over time. So usually a session or two, it's hard to assess that, but if it's an issue that needs longer-term therapy, say it's trauma, say it needs a structured evidence-based treatment, that can be an ideal case. So in that situation in our training, we have to um, explain to the patient, this is why we might record, this is what we're thinking, kind of give them a, a whole explanation of why and ask their permission. And they can say no, and that's fine. So I can't personally think in any situation where a provider would just start recording a patient without asking their permission, without explaining the process. To me, that seems very, it's kind of shocking.
2: It's pretty sketchy.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I'm not a lawyer. I don't know, and it's, I feel like legality is the lowest level. So it may or may not have been legal based on the state with one-party consent, two-party consent. But to me, the bigger concern is their licensure. So I'm a psychologist. I'm licensed through the state of Virginia. And um, there are certain rules of ethics that all psychologists follow, and there are certain rules of ethics that the states impose. And I can't think of any situation where that would be okay.
1: I know some airmen and I myself have Mm -hmm. gone through a process where we sought mental health resources. It was a good experience doing that, but we also had to go to a medical review board. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about why certain airmen have to do a medical review board?
0: Definitely. So... A goal of a med board itself is to determine if someone should stay in the Air Force. It's not necessarily determined, and you didn't say this, but people often ask me this, it's not to kick you out, right? The goal of med board is to determine if someone needs restrictions, can continue, or, or should have a separation process, like a med, um, being med boarded, being separated from the Air Force. Medically retired is the word I can think of. Um, so the rules have changed recently. Um, less than a year ago, it was more about specific diagnoses. So certain diagnoses, um, you can't have that diagnosis and stay in the Air Force. And there's some that are more easily understandable as far as why that would be. So say you had um, like a break with reality, hallucinations, um, schizophrenia, that can come about in your mid twenties. That's usually the age it comes comes about. And um, it'd be very hard to function with that diagnosis. Usually it's some hardcore medications that take a lot of monitoring. it's going to be kind of a lifelong struggle, and so I think it, most people understand why schizophrenia, It's not going to work in the military. Delusions, um, hallucinations—it's um, just not functioning and be functional. I think what the change was more recently was it used to be just lists of diagnoses, and there were some that were yes/no, some that had like yes/no maybe, based on the severity, based on the time, and there were some that um, really were fine. In the past year, they've changed it to be more functioning focused. So it is a little bit more gray now. If someone has a diagnosis that before maybe they wouldn't be nervous anymore, now as long as they're doing their job, and they're functioning, and you know, and they're doing well, they can stay. And so the goal of the med board is to go through a whole process, a review, to formalize that process. Um, in some cases, if you're in mental health, say for a year, that might trigger a med board, but in some cases it might not. And it really comes down to um, how severe is the diagnosis. Spheres are functioning, how often are seeing treatment? If someone's in for once a month, that's a lot less than weekly or multiple times a week. Um, and so, really, yeah, it really does come down to an individualized perspective. I think what I don't presume, but people will compare their stories with one another, and um, things can seem unfair from a surface level. Say your mental health twice a week for a year, that's a lot more than once a month for a year. People might compare those situations and think they're unfair. Um, but digging deeper, there's kind of a reason for it. As far as the MedBird process, um, generally, whatever clinician saw the patient the most, or um, it was there, is going to take every single thing and hit in the record and put it into one summary. So there's a like a PDF that has different questions that are asked, and the goal is to put enough information to capture all the treatment in one document without being too much that's overwhelming. So that could be anywhere from you know half a page to three pages if it's based on the complexity and then that document is compiled and most med groups have a board that meets once a month and they're gonna go through those and determine what next steps are. So there could be a recommendation that we wanna continue treatment, recommendation to have a med board, and then they can take that and decide what to do with it. Really, it depends. If people are making progress and you know engaging in treatment, I think they'll get a lot more time. If something is so um, difficult, as far as the diagnosis goes, there's no progress indicated by, um, by evidence. Then it's probably going to trigger my words sooner so i don't know if that was answering to any question
1: it did and i think that even with the knowledge that you might be risking a career change Mm -hmm. um, speaking from my experience seeking the mental health resources anyway just so that you can solve the issues that you have um, is a good it was a good risk for me to take a healthy
2: air force is always better than an unhealthy unstable air force so whatever the situation is or to your concern it's always more advantageous for yourself to go seek mental health Mm -hmm. rather Mm -hmm. than let it sit with you and then not be happy
1: throughout life and ultimately going back to how we started with the with doctrine like a healthy airman contributes to the mission exactly
0: yes and it's not worth risking your life for the fear of um, a diagnosis for your career. In most cases, it's fine. Um, I don't know any provider that's not trying to help their patient. And so the providers that I'll know, their goal is to help the person. And sometimes the Air Force is in that picture, sometimes it's not. But I personally don't think it's worth it to, if you need help, then get help, right? And they'll work it out. Um, I think the process is, is, for most people, it tends to go really well. And um, the girls to kind of fix those acceptance where it doesn't go well.
2: Right, and I know we talked about the med board and everything, mm-hmm. um, but I know people, or, or airmen, they need to know or they want to know, like what is really, when does mental health become disqualifying for the Air Force?
0: And that's where it can be that there's a, there's lots of different, I guess, um, AFIs that can be referenced, and they're all online, you can find them, but there are lists of things you can do or can't do, can't have or, or not have to fly. And so um, there's a session list, there's charts, and that's kind of the initial piece. Um, for mental health, usually it's, it's the psychotic disorders, so your perceptions of reality are off, and that'd be schizophrenia, uh, schizophrenic form, there's a whole bunch of different things. Um, usually you're not gonna be able to stay in with those, um, but you can't really hide that, it just, it's really difficult. The gray area could be, say, depression and anxiety. Um, depression and anxiety can be very treatable. Um, there's lots of excess in that. There's lots of different ways. For some medications, great way to treat it, for some therapy and some both. Um, they're gonna wanna see that treatment's been tried for a while before med board for me. Um, if someone is, um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Sorry, just come off the top of my head. If nothing's working, and you're in the pit of despair for extreme lengths of time, coming to treatment, trying medications, and it generally is that unique case of like, say, like some kind of treatment resistant depression, that's probably going to be med board. Um, sometimes it can be based on the patient, sometimes it's not. Someone loves their job, keeping them in it. Um, they're going to try to keep them in. But then again, it does come down to a board of people, lots of experts. It's hard. I'm a you know the provider. Um, my job, my goal is to root for the patient. I want them to get better. And so thankfully, like I wouldn't be the one to assess my own patients. That's a whole board of people because that'd be really difficult to change that mindset, change that role. But my first and foremost goal is to help you get better. And for a lot of people, for most people, that works great, works well. But there are gonna be times where it's just not working. And that's where you have conversation about, does your future include the Air Force? Is this, is this, is this gonna be the thing for you? And so there's no cut and dry answer that can be hard. But there are charts of things that you can find that have like in general, but since that changed in this year, it tends to be more about functioning too. So I know individuals um, that really work hard and they can do great things in the Air Force in spite of a diagnosis that might sound kind of scary in that sense.
2: So it's more about how the airman functions in support of the mission rather than some things they're going through
0: mm-hmm. and it could it could differ based on your job um a reasonable person would recognize when someone shouldn't fly like falling asleep in the airplane um maybe your job if you're able to have a standing desk and, and you know have like a treadmill and walk on a, on a computer-based job maybe that wouldn't be a problem so it really does base, it is depend on your unique situation
2: i've been through mental health myself, and I was seeing a provider that did not mesh well with how I would seek help. Um, it was not helping me in any way. I kept on going back to this provider because he was the only one. What would you recommend for that? Like, how do you go about that?
0: That's hard. I know personalities don't match or mesh. Sometimes it would be difficult not knowing that base specifically, I would ask about the other resources like OneSource and Flax, trying something out. Providers can be providers for OneSource and still be higher level providers, but have that service. And so you can have access to, to great people, great care, and that can be a really great resource too. But that is difficult. Mental health in general is undermanned. I know my base for undermanned, and that's kind of the goal to figure out the resources. Um, but I don't, I don't know the best solution for that besides those, those options.
2: Would there be an option to go to a civilian therapist, psychologist? Yeah.
0: So depending on the base, um, some bases will bring you off base. And there can be um, some minor strings attached. So I know, in my experience, the idea, if you see an off-base provider, they have to give kind of a quarterly check-in. They're not going to give you everything, but some sort of summary of the note. And that can be a way to extend access to care. Bases that with limited access care um, probably do that, likely do that depending where they are. And the reason they want to get some kind of record is just you're not saying you're knowing and you're not going. Or you might tell that provider something that is extreme that the other needs to know about. And there's, there needs to be a mechanism to account for that. Also, as far as paying for insurance, they don't make sure that it's warranted. So an example would be if someone is telling their provider that they have, um, like, homicidal intent. That's a reason for confidentiality. And um, there's a spectrum amongst other providers, but having a way of like, this is how you can feedback to us as the military. And there are exceptions in HIPAA for commanders know things, things they need to know. And so just making sure they're educated on that. Military providers are trained in, in what that means, what that is, but in general, most civilian providers aren't gonna know that. That's not their practice. And so that can be a mechanism to help them out for that. I know our base, we do referrals off base, and that's the way to extend our, our care, but we also have that mechanism of sharing records. Also, one thing I forgot to mention was um, chaplains. Um, chaplains are a great resource. It might depend on your comfort level. Um, I know you can see chaplain if you are not religious. They have one hundred percent confidentiality. And so, coming to mental health, there is going to be record. There's going to be something documented. Um, I document at the least level necessary, so I'm not going to put down deep personal secrets in there, but I'll put kind of a summary. Every provider's different on that. Chaplains, you know, don't keep records. They are one hundred percent confidential, and for a lot of people, that can be. Uh, comforting, knowing that they are completely going to keep what you say um, secret, confidential. Whereas, you know, every patient I see, I let them know what the confidentiality is, what limits are. Um, a chaplain's going to tell you that they're 100% confidential. And so um, I know chaplains on our base are great, and it's just another resource we have on that spectrum of resources.
2: I think it's just whatever whatever everyone's comfortable with. Mm-hmm. If they're religious and feel more comfortable around mm-hmm. chaplains, that's a great first resource. Mm-hmm. And then from there, if they need more help, the chaplain can always help them find the right resource for them.
0: And chaplains are going to be more comfortable with some topics um, just based on their experience. They might lead funerals. They might be more comfortable with grief and loss than some providers. They haven't dealt that before. I think they really fill a unique role in the Air Force that even if you're not religious, they're great at talking through things. They have that skill.
2: So, can you give us an example of how anybody can use something for mental health?
0: Yeah, most um, therapists um, that I'm aware of operate from a kind of a cognitive behavioral um, perspective, and so there's things you do for behaviors, things as far as your thought patterns, your conditions that can make a huge impact to your mental health. And so, for example, um, for poor sleep, one of the best things, well, the best thing you can do, backed on by research, is wake up at the same time every day. And it can sound counterintuitive, but when you wake up in the morning, that sets your clock for the day, your circadian rhythm. So by waking up at the, fir- at the same time every day, including the weekend, that sets you up for success for your sleep. And people will sleep in on the weekends and then um, sleep in late on Saturdays, late on Sunday. Monday, it's hard to get up and it throws off their sleep for the next couple of days. Because essentially, if you sleep in three hours on the weekend, um, it's kind of a form of jet lag. You're throwing off your whole system. And the best thing, even if you stay up too late, the best thing you do is still get up at the same time Set your clock for that day, and you'll sleep better. An example of a cognitive intervention—it's um, kind of how you talk talk to yourself. Most people, seventy um, percent of people, have this inner dialogue. Either they're talking to themselves, talking about themselves, um, which is you know very seventy percent of people have that. And how you talk to yourself matters. So a general principle that I like is um, treat yourself like someone worth um, talking to. So would you tell your best friend what you're telling yourself? If you call yourself an idiot after you say something dumb, maybe you make a social faux pas, maybe you say something kind of weird, kind of awkward, and you kind of just beat yourself down, you wouldn't treat your friend like that, right? So treat yourself um, like you're your own good friend. And if you do that simple little thing, um, it can make you feel much better. Another example would be um, reducing should talk. We often tell ourselves, um, I should have done this, I should have done that. It's very negative and, and like past mistake focused rather than a future focus of what you could have done. And we'll say don't shoot on yourself because um, that doesn't doesn't help it's impossible you can't change the past so then by reflecting on what you should have done that's an impossible situation instead this is what i would have rather done and i'm gonna do this now so that's kind of a future orientation and those are just three examples of kind of inventions that you might be given that can make a huge difference on how you feel
2: thank you i'm um, going further on that like A lot of situations like cognitive behavior. What else is there that someone can do to just be in a better mental state? Like what other habits are out there that people can focus on?
0: Yeah, I like the acronym um, HALT, since we're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, and that can cover almost any situation. A lot of people don't realize they're hungry. You're low on food or water. Maybe you're like your, your sugar level's low, your close is low. Um, maybe you're frustrated about something, maybe you're angry and you wanna get that out, expressing how you feel. It's not good to bury feelings and let them out because it's hard to control that. I'm lonely, maybe you need social connection, maybe you need friends, um, maybe you need to make a phone call and then tired. Um, I myself just the other day, I was feeling kind of cranky. I thought something was wrong and I took kind of a second to kind of examine how I was doing and I was just tired. I think didn't go to bed, it wasn't some big issue. I was just sleepy. So the halt can really cover a lot of things um, and, and make a big difference. And I use that for myself, too.
2: Thank you, Dr. Morrison, for being with us today and talking through mental health in the military. Um, with that, I want to encourage everyone listening to really take care of yourself and your airmen.
0: That's going to do it for today's episode of the Reciphering Doctrine podcast. This podcast is produced by the Lomay Center, mixed by Air University Public Affairs, and conducted by students at Squadron Officer School. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.